The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. I'm going to begin by asking this question. How do we overcome the world? How do we overcome the reality of darkness? How do we overcome the reality of evil, Satan, and death? How do we overcome a world system that is just opposed to everything that is good, true, and beautiful? A few years ago, I read a book by this secular philosopher. He was kind of offering a a history of thought, and he said that basically all questions, all of the questions that we all wrestle with, all of our existential angst and all of the things that we wrestle with all boil down to this one question. How do we overcome death? How do we deal with the fact of death? Or to use this language, how do we overcome the reality of death, darkness, and evil? In scriptural language, this domain of death, darkness, evil, and Satan is referred to as the world. And so there's a variety of responses to the reality of the world and our attempts to overcome the world, we might say. One attempt might be to reject or deny the world, to say that after all, it's not so bad and that the goal of life is to not be so susceptible to the evil and the darkness. Uh, There's been a rise in recent years of something called Stoicism, uh, which is essentially this ancient system of thought which said that the problem is is, is not that there's evil out there, the problem is is you're just too susceptible to it. You need to learn to overcome the reality of evil. The problem is with that, of course, is that the world is just dark, and in our bones we know that it's not supposed to be that way. And so it's not as simple as just plugging our ears. Maybe another response to the reality of the world is to just deaden ourselves to it with scrolling and streaming and cheap amusement. To numb ourselves to the reality of the darkness by just ignoring it through Netflix. But we also know that to numb ourselves to that is to also numb ourselves to anything that's good in the world. Or maybe the answer is to just succumb to it, to just drink it in and just embrace it as if this is the way that things are supposed to be. To adopt a kind of fetish for death and pointlessness and nihilism. To say bah humbug at every Merry Christmas. But we also know that that can't be the case because in our bones we know that life is not meaningless and we know that this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. So how do we respond to the reality of the world, to the reality of darkness, evil, and death? How do we overcome the world? Reagan and Hannah already kind of stole our thunder, but we're going to look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to do it a little weird. We're actually going to go backwards through the text, and it's a little funky. I'm just going to ask you to hang with me because sometimes... It's helpful to actually see where the author is going, to see his conclusion, and then build backwards from that conclusion to make sense of what he's saying in that chapter. And hopefully, it'll make sense. So let's start at verse 11 of 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Verse 11. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Okay, so John says that God testifies to us. This is legal or uh, in a historical sense, kind of this idea of offering something that has happened truly. A testimony is a statement of something's legitimacy or truthfulness. John says that God testifies us to us this message, that he has given us eternal life through his Son. In fact, the life is in his Son, he says. And then he says that those who have the Son have life. And the inverse of that is true as well, that those who don't have the Son don't have life. In John's gospel, he opens by saying that Jesus is life, that Jesus 
is life. He is like life itself, the source of all things, is the person Jesus. And that this life is the light of men. And he comes bursting into the darkness of the world on Christmas morning, and darkness can't overcome it. It's like he, he is so potent and full of life that when he bursts on the scene, it's like a new day has dawned. In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples that tribulation is coming, but he tells them, take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Jesus is life, and on Christmas, when he bursts onto the scene, he breaks the back of death and darkness. He's born to die, to ultimately rise again from the grave to an indestructible life, overcoming sin and death. In 1 John chapter 3, verse, verses 5 and 8, John tells us that Jesus appeared to take away sin, and that he appeared to destroy the works of Satan. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, John tells us that the world is passing away, that the darkness is, is um, re- uh, receding as a result of Jesus' coming. Jesus has overcome the world. So uh, on your blanks and your bulletins, the first thing to know there is that Jesus has overcome the world. And this is what God testifies to us. Jesus has overcome death by being himself life. This is what God tells us in the story of the gospel. But how does God testify us? Let's look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has, that God has born concerning his Son. Okay, so the content of the testimony is Jesus. That in Jesus there is life. There is a, a darkness-shattering, death-defying life. This is what God testifies And the way that he testifies, John tells us, is by the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now, what on earth is John talking about when he says that the water, the blood, and the spirit agree in their testimony about Jesus? Now, probably what John is referring to when he speaks of the water is the story of Jesus' baptism. This is recorded in places like Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus, we're told, goes to the Jordan River. He sees his cousin, John the Baptist. He's baptized by John the Baptist. And as he's being baptized, it says, the heavens open... And they hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove on Jesus. John seems likely to be referring to that event as a moment that testifies to the the legitimacy of what he's saying here about Jesus. That that moment should give us certainty that Jesus is indeed the the death-defying eternal life in flesh. The blood is probably a reference to the cross. Jesus' body being broken on the cross. John points to that as a piece of evidence, a bit of testimony that we gather to conclude that, you know, what he's saying about Jesus is for real. And then he tells us that the Spirit testifies. The Spirit testifies by the working in our heart, by the the, the kind of sense of, of, of burning that we experience in our heart at the story of Jesus. More than that, it's the story of the, the, the way that the, the Spirit has moved in the church and created the movement of Christians that exist today all across history. And these three together are God's testimony to us that Jesus is life. 
All of these are a testament from God himself that Jesus is the one who has overcome the world. John says that this testimony of God is greater than the testimony of men. Therefore, we ought to believe it, John says. Whoever doesn't receive what God says about Jesus in the form of this testimony makes God a liar. This is what God says about who Jesus is. Do you have any folks in your life that you know that when they say it, it is for real? It's like maybe, it's a, maybe it's a grandparent, like a, a grandfather, who's just a man of few words, but when you know that he speaks, you know that it is for real, that it's bulletproof, that it's going to happen. Uh, my grandfather, who passed away in 2020, we would always ask him about, are the Gamecocks going to win this weekend, and is the weather report guy going to be right? And I don't know how we did it, but he always knew, he always knew if the Gamecocks would pull it off, which usually wasn't the case, and he always knew if it was actually going to snow. So we'd always go to Papa and say, Papa, is it going to snow? Is, is it going to happen? We all have those people in our life. And what John says is that if we believe the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Therefore, we should receive what God has to say to us about Christ. It's ironclad. It's bulletproof. Jesus is the life that overcomes death. Verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So there are those who are of the world, we might say, and there are those who are born of God. And part of the irony is that we all sense the need for things to be made right. We, we, we all experience the reality of darkness and death in the world. But the irony is, is that we are a part of that issue, that we are complicit in the state of things, complicit in the darkness of the world. We must be born of God. We must believe in Jesus and receive new life and be born again, how Jesus says it in John chapter 3. Those that are born of God are those who believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, verse 1. And look at what John says. How do we overcome the world? How do we participate in the overcoming of the world? He tells us, believe on Christ. Our faith is how we overcome the world. We believe in the one who has overcome the world, and by faith, we overcome with him. We overcome the world by belief in Christ, the one who overcame the world. His victory is our victory. Remember what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says that those who have the Son, in the Son is eternal life. So those who have the Son have what? Life. Those who don't have the Son don't have life. Those who are born of God, who, who believe on Christ, will overcome. Will overcome. I thought about actually presenting the content of this passage like this. One simple step to overcoming the world. There's one simple step to overcoming the world. You know what it is? Believe in Jesus until you die. Believe in Jesus until you die. That's how you overcome the world. Faithfulness unto death. Believing in Jesus. Resting on Jesus. Believing that he is the life and that in him there is no darkness. Believing on Christ assures us that we will overcome with him. In John chapter 16 that I mentioned a moment ago, he tells his disciples that inevitably tribulation and temptations and trials are going to come your way. But he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus' promise of his overcoming is what gives us strength in the face of tribulation and temptation and difficulty. It gives, us, it gives us faith and confidence in the face of deconstruction in, in a world that wants to tear our faith apart. 
We can remain in him. And, and 1 John 2.17 says that, that, those, uh, that the darkness is passing away, but those who abide in him will abide forever. We overcome the world by belief in the one who overcomes the world. But overcoming isn't just a future reality. It's also a present reality. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I think in a way what John is describing here is a picture of what it looks like to overcome the world in real time. We are freed up to live as those people who triumph over evil, sin, and death by love. Verses 1 and 2, we are free to love God's people and we are free to love God. And and I love how intimately those two things are are bound up. Look at verse 1 again. Everyone who loves the Father has been born of the Father. But then verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Part of the evidence that I love you, Benji, and that I love you, Luke, and that I love you, Zach, and Brian, and Tammy, part of the evidence that I love you is that I love God, John says. We're free to love God and to love his people. And we love God by loving his people, and we, we, we love his people by loving God, John tells us. But not only that, we are free to obey him with joy, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. You say you love God, obey God. And then look at this, and his commandments are not burdensome. We obey God with joy because we recognize the freedom of obedience, the great relief that is holiness. And so we live counterculturally. We live alternatively. We live as those who overcome sin, Satan, and death. We stick it to the man. We stick it to death. We stick it to the evil one with love, with love for God's word and his people and for God himself and by joyfully embracing obedience to him. In other words, we might say, we are freed to live world-overcomingly in Christ. I just finished reading one of my favorite books, um, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Return of the King. And if you're not familiar with the story of Lord of the Rings, it's this big, nerdy fantasy war epic that was written by a British guy back in the 1940s. And this epic culminates in the heroes destroying the Dark Lord, right? There's the big, bad, evil, dark Lord, the great, big, evil one. The good king is installed, and the rule goes into effect, and the good guys win. They overcome, right? Well, actually, what happens is after they overcome the Dark Lord, and he's unseated, and the good king takes his place, the heroes go back home, and they see that the vestiges of the evil Lord remains, that their little village, the Shire, is infected with evil, and, and, and as, they, as they arrive into the place of their hometown where the, the bad guys are still sort of ruling, they say, haven't you heard? You guys lost. Darkness and evil is passing away. Good has triumphed. And the result is that the evil snarls and fights back. Not because they're losing, but because, precisely because they are. And it's the same way with us in Christ. Listen. Jesus has overcome Jesus has overcome. Jesus is not dead. He is the life that is the light of men, and Christmas is glorious for this reason. Jesus died and is not dead forevermore. God grants life through his Son. The back of sin, Satan, and death has been broken, and the world is passing away. 
The darkness is receding. It will not win. And yet, and yet it still remains. And the way that we overcome is by looking to the one who has overcome in faith. We don't plug our ears about the reality of evil and death. We don't give into hopelessness, and we aren't intimidated when the world snarls and fights back. Instead, we face all of that with joy and confidence as those who will abide forever in Christ. We look to the overcomer, and we live as overcomers, who overcome the world in light and love, in love for God, in love for his people, in the joy of obedience and hope, life, and light. That's how we overcome in Christ. And so just a few questions for us this Christmas morning. First, this. Do you want to overcome the world? Do you want to overcome the world? Or are you snared in hopelessness and despair? Is there, is there any solution to that? Is there any hope that the world can be overcome? The second question for you is, have you ever believed in Jesus? Have you been born of God? And could the story of Christmas be true? The bizarre story of Christianity. Is there anything to the testimony of the spirit, the water, and the blood? And then the last question for us to consider is, do you walk as those who overcome the world in faith? Are you a person of hope? If you're a Christian, your destiny is to abide forever in Christ. And Revelation, as John is writing to the seven churches of Revelation, he ends each of his little bits of the letter to each of these churches by offering some promise to the one who overcomes. He says to, to the one who remains in Christ, who, who abides in him, who remains faithful, who, who doesn't jump ship, who holds fast, the promise that is held out to the one who overcomes is life, it is feasting, it is hidden manna, it is authority over the nations, it is white garments and an indestructible, inerasable name. It is a promise of being a pillar in God's temple, and it's a seat enthroned with Christ forever. So do you walk as one who overcomes the world in faith? Do you walk in hope? Do you walk in light and love? Now this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is for us a victory meal. It is the toast after the enemy has surrendered. This is the bread and the drink of victory. And this is our reminder to persist in faith, hope, and love. As we take of the supper, we encourage each other, encourage one another to keep on believing on Christ. We look backwards to the coming of the Lord Jesus when he overcame in his life, death, and resurrection, when he overcame all that is evil and broken. We look backwards to his sacrifice on the cross. We also look outwards. We look at one another, these brothers and sisters who are united in Christ, who share a common cup and a common loaf. And then we look forwards. It reminds us of the feast that is coming when Jesus returns to make all sad things untrue, his glorious triumphant return. These are the hors d'oeuvres of that feast. The way this will work is our elders are going to come up and they're going to be posted up at, Aaron and Jim are going to be posted up at these different stations with the communion. We're going to invite everyone who believes on Christ to make their way down these outward aisles, receive the elements, and take it back to your seat, and then we'll take these elements together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have overcome the world, and we have an ironclad hope in you. And we pray, Jesus, that you would, you would enable us to, to stand firm and, and to 
to continue believing, to, to not be intimidated by the snarls and by the fighting back of the world, to not be discouraged by the reality of, of darkness and evil, but that we would look to you and, and would look to you all the more confident that you have overcome death and evil, that you have overcome the world, that you have overcome our sin, and that in you we too are overcomers. Lord Jesus, I pray as we take these elements that our faith would be strengthened, that our bond of of brotherhood and sisterhood would be strengthened, that our hope would be strengthened as we look to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.